You're listening to another great message from Northside Community Church. We preachers, to give you a bit of a background, we often will spend anywhere between an hour to an hour and a half just to get the first two minutes right in any message that we have on a Sunday in order to write an introduction that is going to basically make you want to listen for the next 25 minutes and understand why you should listen for the next 25 minutes. And so this morning, we're going to talk about what the Bible has to say about sex. And there's my introduction. Uh, now, I'm warning you, what, what we're about to hear from uh, has the potential to fly. It does fly in the face of what the culture thinks and says. Uh, because I know when I talk to non-Christians about sex, uh, often the reaction is, well, you Christians, you're just a fringe group, a bunch of prudes. Uh, you're fringy with this stuff. You're not in touch with reality. you just got to get with the trends. And my initial response to that without the sermon is simply, look, you have to understand that it's not just the Protestants, but it's all of the Roman Catholics and it's everyone in Islam and it's everyone in Judaism and it's everyone in Hinduism pretty much holds to the same sex ethic that we're going to hear this morning from Jesus. So before you hang a little sign that says this guy's a loony, invisible sign over his neck, realize that uh, we're probably in the majority with the way that we view this tricky topic this morning. And ironically, when people say, oh, you Christians are out of touch. Look, when Jesus was preaching into the culture back then, Christians were out of touch in comparison to the rest of the Roman culture. Uh, they were totally different. Their ethic on this was totally different. Rodney Stark, a historian on the, on the rise of the early church, said, here was the difference between the pagans and the Christians, the non-Christians and the Christians. The pagans, uh, they guarded their money and they were promiscuous with their beds. And then he said, yet, yet the Christians, on the other hand, they guarded their beds and they were promiscuous with their money. <laughs> I'm going to see that next week when we talk about greed and materialism. And as a result, they were, they were blindingly different. They were so bright in the way that they were in the culture. They were so different that Christianity exploded. They were so different, even though the Romans were saying, get with the times. Could it be possible then? That if this dynamic of difference in relation to the topic of sex was, was the very thing that was beautiful and attractive and wonderful and caused Christianity to, Christianity to explode through Rome. If, it's, if it was that different back then, could it be that if we hold the same very different ethic, it, it would be the whole basis for why Christianity could explode in, Christi in Sydney this morning? So uh, what does Jesus have to say about sex? Uh, we're going to see that he says the Bible's got a higher view of sex than you realise. He says also that sex is only for a relationship of total commitment. And he also says that love and lust and passion are two totally different things. So it's higher than you think. It's, it's, it's for a relationship of total commitment. And love and lust are two totally different things. Here's the first thing that Jesus says to us when he says in verse 27, do not commit adultery. What he's saying there is that uh, the Bible's view of sex is higher than you realize. You see, those who hear this passage, they go, that's a terribly negative way to view these things. Come on. That's, that's a terribly, do not do this. That's a negative way to view this stuff, says the modern person. But remember last week I said, look, if something... Uh, pushes up against you, offends you, prickles you out of the Bible, you have, to ask, you have to do one of two things. You have to ask yourself, could it be that the Bible is, t is not really teaching what I think it's teaching? Uh, 
And the second one is, am I reading the Bible with unexamined cultural superiorities? And it's more than likely for many when they see the Bible's high view of sex, they're, they're doing the first one. They're not, they're not really seeing what it's teaching. And here's what it's teaching. You see, way back uh, in those times, the Bible was speaking in against two prevailing views of sex at the time. There were two different views. Uh, the first view was uh, the view from the mystery religions, those cultic religions, uh, like the god Osiris and the Egyptian and the, the, the Greek oracles and all those mystery cults that are, are, were around at the time. They said, well, sex is just an appetite. So if you're hungry, you eat food. If you're sexy, you want to sex. That's what it's saying, as simple as that. Just have sex. If you're hungry for sex, if you're hungry for food, eat food. Uh, that's what the mystery religion said. Then on the other side, you had, uh, you had the Platonic view from Plato, you know, the Greek philosopher. The Platonic view. And the Greeks uh, viewed sex like this, uh, that they viewed the whole world, that the body and material w- was bad and the spirit and the soul was good and beautiful and perfect. And so since sex was a physical act and a bodily act, um, then effectively uh, sex was a dirty thing. It was, you've got to get away from that. Uh, it, it wasn't a beautiful thing. And uh, so this platonic view, which is ironically when we say if you're in a platonic relationship, you're in a sexless relationship. Uh, so it was this, this other prudish sort of view. So there's two views. There's a promiscuous view over here that, that says just eat. The other view says, oh, look, sex is a dirty thing. And then along comes Christianity and it says it's totally different. Totally different. See, first of all, the, the promiscuous view of sex actually doesn't have a high enough view of, of the way that Bible, the Bible talks about sex. Um, the objection is, oh, you Christians, you, you know, you've got to get with the times. You're stifling sex. If you're hungry, just eat. If you're feeling sexy, sex. But the Bible comes up against that and says, no, don't have sex with whoever and whenever you feel like it. And when it's saying that, it's saying sex is not just an appetite to be satisfied. You can imagine, imagine you go to a, a foreign country where you come to learn what they're all about and you go and hang out in this foreign country and, and so you, uh, you hang out with all of the university age guys and, and you go into their dorm rooms and there's big glossy posters of hamburgers and hot dogs and french fries and, and there's all beautiful lighting on them all and there's water sprayed all over the food and, and then you go into the other dorm rooms and someone else has got a hot dog and a hamburger and, and the boys just hang around the room and they stare at the posters and they just, oh, they just look back on it and they dwell upon it and then you go out to the clubs and, and, uh, and this sort of hot dog comes out into the middle of a stage and men throw money at it and it's a hamburger patty and now, look at this, if it wasn't so serious it would be laughable some of you are laughing. Um, here's the point. If you saw a country like that, you would say one of two things. Either these people are totally starving or their appetites are totally warped. Now, you come to the modern world and we look at our advertising. Look at Cosmo magazine. Look at car ads, for crying out loud. It's always got to have a woman lying over the bonnet. For a car. Look at a Nicki Minaj video clip. Iggy Azalea. And the modern world says, oh, we've got sex under control. We've got it. It's okay. Humanity's got sex under control. Really? What does Jesus say? Look, if, if, you, if this is starting to become an issue for you, cut your hand off, gouge your eye out. Is he being 
is he just overreacting? In some ways, yes. But what he's saying is, uh, he's saying, cut this stuff out of your life or you, would, you, you could go into hell. Now, he's not saying if you do this act, then you're going to go straight into hell. What he's actually talking about, the word for hell there is Gehenna, which was a rubbish tip outside of Jerusalem. And so what he's saying is if this stuff begins to pervade and take over your life, cut it out lest you move into a position where you, your life just re- resembles a, a, a flowing tip of sewage. He's saying that's how powerful sex is. Have we got it under control? Really? Really? The United Nations says that there are between 27 to 30 million people in sexual slavery today. Have we got it under control? Jesus Jesus says there is a power to sex that has the potential to rip your life apart. And the problem, he says, with the promiscuous is they don't understand the power. They don't understand what they're playing with. They're like three-year-olds playing with with a gun. They haven't got the safety trigger on. So the promiscuous view of sex is actually way too low. They think they're being, being high view. It's too low. Now, on the other hand, there's the platonic, the, the prudish view of sex. And the prudish view of sex, you know, there, there are some Christians that... Uh, dare I say it, they look like they're espousing a very literal and a very godly view of the Bible in terms of their conservatism towards sex. But really it can actually be coming from a heart of, or really the paradigm that's saying sex is dirty. You've been brought up in a traditional culture where well, you don't talk about that, hush hush, you don't talk it through and sex is dirty. Now what is fascinating when I went through and I read this stuff and I looked at the Bible and you searched through, through the Bible software, you know what, when you look at what the Bible says about sex... Um, If the translators hadn't have wimped out, there are things in this book that would make every single one of us blush. Okay, just just go to Proverbs chapter five in the way that it tells uh, men that they should be ravished by their by by their wives' breasts. Or go to the Song of Solomon's where it talks about the woman looking at her husband's ivory tusk. Okay. You do the biblical analysis of all of that, right? We're all starting to brush, blush a little bit. Um, go, to, go to 1 Corinthians 7, 5, where it talks about not only does the Bible permit sex in a healthy way, but it commands it in a marriage. It says, don't withhold it from one another, husbands and wives, if you're in marriage. It's a healthy thing. Now, does that sound like a prudish document to you? Can't you see the problem that we've got first up is that the promiscuous view and the prudish view of sex is too low. God says this is, a, this is a beautiful thing, this is a wonderful thing, this is an incredible thing, primarily because sex is just a signpost. It's an, it's an echo ultimately of what is going to happen when you move into the ultimate eternal union with me. Why is it such a spiritual, incredible thing for people in marriage to engage in that act? Because it's just a glimpse, it's a foretaste of what will happen when we are united eternally with the Godhead. It's a beautiful thing. And so are you seeing the Bible's high view of sex? It's, if you understand the high view of sex, you, you won't become promiscuous and you won't become a prude. You, you won't become promiscuous because you know of its power and what it can do to you and you won't become a prude because uh, you won't despise it. You won't, be, you won't be trapped by an unhealthy view of it. Now, um, I'm not from Mars. I've been a young adult and... I've been through the single life and I'm married now and I realise that many of you here this morning are suffering from whiplash in this topic because you've been thrown from one way or the other. On one hand, some of you have been raised in traditional families or within this context of 
a healthy biblical view of sex and then you get to a stage of your life in which someone said that you had to be liberated from that or you said that you had to be liberated from that and it burnt you and it hurt you and there was problems and there was pain. Or it could be the other way, that you've not been within this context of the church and you've already just done whatever throughout your life and then you come to know this view and then you're thrown back there and you've got whiplash. Um, the third group of people is, you know, I recognise and it breaks my heart that uh, you have been, you've been burnt by the power of sex or the misuse of sex, either by yourself or by other people in your life as well. And when we come to understand that, we see that, that that is the greatest challenge for us this morning as a church, is that for all of us, it can be so difficult because of that history just to come to a right and a healthy view of this beautiful thing that God has given us. But if are you with me on this, the high view, we have to get the high view of God's powerful and good thing that sex is. We have to get that only when we get that. Remember? Maybe the Bible's not really teaching what you think it's teaching. Only when you get that can you move into the second point this morning, that Jesus says sex is only for a relationship of total commitment. Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now the word here for adultery is mehivo in the Greek. Uh, It doesn't mean just to cheat on your husband or your wife. Uh, That's not what he's talking about. It means um, no sex outside of a relationship of total commitment to one another. And look, the one person says, that sounds restrictive. You've got to get with the times. But Jesus really here, when he says, you have heard it said, what he's doing is he is reaffirming all of the Old Testament teaching on the concept of, of adultery. And adultery in the Old Testament was always uh, not just cheating on your husband or wife. It was to um, have sex outside the strict relationship of covenant. Sex only in covenant, says the Bible in the positive terms. That's the way you could frame it positively. Now, some of you say covenant. Could you use a more modern, a more appropriate word? That's a bit archaic. Um, No, I can't. And here's why. Because covenant's not a word. It's a category of thought. Covenant's not a word. It's a category of thought. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Covenant is a relationship, but it's a relationship, and we call that marriage, It's a relationship that's far stronger than merely just the legal relationship and it's a relationship that's more enduring than just the emotional aspects of relationship. See, what if I said to you that covenant is the sort of relationship that can be more loving and more emotionally deep because it's legal? Now, some of you would say, oh, that's that's crazy, but let, let me explain what I mean for a second here. Let me show you the difference between a consumer relationship and a and a covenant relationship. A consumer relationship is the relationship that we have with Harvey Norman, for example. It's a relationship that you're a vendor and I'm the buyer, and so basically uh, we've, got, we've got relationships so long as you provide what I want and what I need at the right price. But I'm always looking for an upgrade. So you better keep adjusting to my needs and you better keep matching the price or I'm going somewhere else. That's consumer relationship. A covenant relationship, on the other hand, says... You know what, I've committed to something higher, something more formal, something legal, and so I'm not worried about whether you adjust to my needs or not because I will submit my needs up into that institution. You see the difference? Consumer relationship says, unless you provide me with what I want, then I'm out of here. 
We've got relationship as long as my needs are met. But covenant works the totally opposite to that. And here's what we get to. The Bible says sex is meant to be a covenant good, not a consumer good. The consumer approach to sex says, I need it. I need it for my approval. I need it to feel good. I need it for pleasure. I need it for a sense of completion. That's the consumer approach to it. But what is sex from a biblical perspective? Uh, The best way to describe it is from a biblical perspective, a, a covenant good. Sex is like a sacrament. Sacrament like baptism or communion. It sounds a weird way to say it like that. But you know what a sacrament is? A sacrament is an, an, a, an external physical representation of the invisible reality. That's what baptism is, right? It's, it's a physical representation of the internal reality that's, that's happening, the invisible reality of change in Jesus Christ. And so here it is. Um, sex in the, in the context of covenant is a sacrament. It's an external sign of this reality. What's the reality? The reality is this, and the way that I boiled it down to this in terms of summarizing it is, and what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus says to us that your, your physical nakedness needs to parallel your emotional and your intellectual and your individualistic nakedness. He's saying that the two have to parallel themselves all the way down into the depths. And that's why C.S. Lewis puts it like this, that the monstrosity of sex outside of covenant is the indulgence in the isolation of one union apart from all the others. So biblical sex, it's, it's an unspoken commitment that says, in covenant, I belong completely to you. And now the act becomes an expression of that commitment and submission to one another. So let's get practical with this. Uh, you know, I chat to many of the young adults. This is the great struggle for us all, living together in sexual relationship before marriage. You see, a lot of the rationale that I, when I counsel young couples that are working through this stuff or, uh, or I'm talking to friends, that the rationale is, uh, look, this living together and, and being in a sexual relationship can just help prepare us for marriage. It's helping to prepare us for marriage. But until you, as Beyonce would say, put a ring on it, um, here's, here's the thing. Until you put a ring on it, you're always in consumer relationship, not covenant. And so there is always a point then when you're living together and you could love each other in, in an incredible way, but there is always a point where, where someone, because it doesn't have that commitment, they can say, I'm not getting my needs met, I'm out of here. So the question is, what does sex become in that context? It's not a sacrament, it's advertising, it's marketing, it's, it's appealing, it's, it's, it's trying to meet the needs of the other person. So what I'm getting at is like sex before marriage can't prepare you for marriage any more than a baby's gulps in the womb can prepare them for breathing when they get outside. Two totally separate things, two totally different contexts in terms of the way that the Bible frames this up. So back to the question, how, how is this legality more fulfilling, more freeing, uh, more deeper, more wonderful? If you're in covenant like this and you're committed and, and no, one, no one can just exit because their needs are being met, finally you have the one place in the world where you can just be yourself. Isn't that a wonderful freeing thing for for, for, for the mother who's just had a child and feels ugly to her husband? <laughs> Isn't it a wonderful freeing thing for a person to come in and to be able to let all of their vulnerabilities out on the table and not have to be constantly auditioning? 
Isn't it a wonderful thing for new Christians when they move to marriage to be hopeless at the act itself and not have all the moves? They, they can, you're totally free to be yourself. Can you see why the relationship become more loving and more enriching and deeper when it's in covenant, when it's actually restrictive and legal? Jesus says sex only in this relationship. And as a result, uh, the love and the act and the expression actually grows the love and the commitment to one another. Now, look, I, I recognize that some of you here may push back on that. Uh, this is why we have to wrestle this through in community. It's part of my job to expound what I believe the Bible to be saying to each and every one of us. We're going to see the grace of Jesus in all of this in a second. But bear with me a sec. This has got to push up against us. But, but Jesus has good reason for all of this happening in this way. The third point that we see this morning, love and passion are two totally different things. Love and passion are two totally different things. So not only do we need the high view of sex, not only does it need to be in covenant, but we see that love and passion are two totally different things. Verse 28, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the, literally, the Greek there says, anyone who looks in order to lust. The literal is anyone who looks in order to lust. So there's two parts to this. There's the looking and then there's the in order to. There's the looking and then there's the in order to. See, I hope I've shown you, first of all, in the high view of sex, that God created sex. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so a sexual passion and attraction is a good thing. And so Jesus is saying there's not, nothing, anything wrong specifically in the looking. He, said it's the, he says it's the looking in order to. And here's what he means. It's fascinating here. Jesus uses a word here for lust that he, it's almost never used for sex. When I, again, went through all the research, uh, the word for lust is used 62 times and only two times in the New Testament is it used in relation to sex. So it's not a word. The word that he uses here has really got nothing to do with sex. And I love it because it's one of my favorite words in the Bible. It's fascinating. It's nuanced. And if you get its principle, oh man, does it unlock everything. The word, the word he uses is epithumia. The word for lust that he uses, we often think of lust as a sexual desire. No, the word that Jesus used is epithumia, which means an inordinate, impersonal over-desire. And ironically, he'll use the same words when he talks about greed and when he talks about money. And Paul uses it when he talks about coveting the possessions of your neighbor. The word covet is another translation for epithumia. So you have epithumia and you have lust and, and covet and envy all stem out of that word. And so that word means to take something good and to overuse it or to misuse it. So can't you see that if that is Jesus' definition for lust, inordinate, impersonal, over-desire, can you see how that will unlock a heck of a lot of things? And it broadens... It, it, it broadens what he's talking about here in the most profound sorts of ways. It catches the girls, not only the guys with this verse, because the girls will shut down with this. Oh, this is just for the blokes, because we know that blokes have to deal with that all the time. But we girls don't look. So it's just a looking thing for the guys. That's, that's not what Jesus is getting at. It catches us all. Here's the thing. Lust, epithumia in the Bible is not just a sexual thing. Lust, epithumia in the Bible is self-maximizing motivation. 
And so let's get practical with that then. Back in the context of the sermon, if epithumia, if it is impersonal over-desire, then on one hand you, you begin straight up to see pornography for what it really is, don't you? can't think of anything else that is a total misuse of sexual desire and it's inherently impersonal because you don't know the stories you don't know what the ladies or the men have been through you don't know what's happened behind the scenes it's impersonal and 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 on the other hand it's incredibly selfish you think about the actors you trace all of that out it's a selfish act it's it's divorced from covenant over here and there are realities to that, psychological and scientific, that we could spend a whole other sermon on. But let's just see how absolutely applicable this word is to a very real problem in our society today. On the other hand, in a strange way too, if you think of lust in terms of epithemia, impersonal, inordinate desire, lust can apply to the desire to be married, for example. And boy, do I know this. Boy, does my heart ache for my sisters, often in the church who are desperate to find the right guy and to be married and to see the way that at times it, it can absolutely consume them and they think, if I could just find the right guy and if I could just have the perfect family, then maybe just maybe I'll be complete. You know what that is? That's, that's lusting for marriage. That's taking something that is, is good and it's elevating it to a place of significance and goodness and glory in your life that is only meant for God. So you see how powerful this word is? That it's, it's impersonal, inordinate desire. Let me sum it up. Lust makes you want a man in general. Love makes you want a particular man. Lust strips sexual thrill away from trust and total commitment. Love feeds sexual love, godly love, and it grows it in line with commitment. See the difference? Love is totally opposite from lust. Inordinate, impersonal desire. Now, some of you are saying, look, please don't. Are we doing okay, by the way? It's heavy. Oh, it's like I need a drink of water. Oh. Uh, some, some of you are saying, look, please, please don't let us walk away from here without anything practical out of all of this. Uh, and I won't. Let's just go straight into some application as we finish off this morning. Here's the first one. Distinguish thought from fantasy. When Jesus says it's not about looking, it's about looking in order to, you have to realize, guys and girls, uh, sin is thought in order to. Sin is not the thought. Sin is thought in order to. And as Dallas Willard puts it, sin is thought plus the inclination. Uh, let me phrase it another way. Sin, sin is, is rolling the lolly around in the mouth of your soul over and over and over again. So you can taste but not bite. And so look, looking's, uh, it's a natural thing. If you catch yourself out, you're not, you're not sliding straight to hell because you looked in the wrong direction. Uh, but to dwell, to taste, to roll it around, that's a different thing. The second one is you do need self-control. That's why Jesus is being so absolutely drastic, saying, look, if, if you're starting to look and it's getting out of hand, gouge your eye out or cut your hand off lest you... Go into hell, lest your life becomes hell with all of this is a better way to paraphrase what he's saying. And you're going, really? You're just over-exaggerating, Jesus? No, he says. No, this is a serious infection. He's saying if there's just a hint of sexual gangrene in the soul, cut it out. 
Get rid of it. In fact, he says if, you were, if, you, if you're outside of covenant that it takes an element of sexual gangrene of the soul just to numb yourself from the psychological effects of what this is doing to you. You have to deaden yourself in order to move into that type of sexual relationship. What it means, and what it means for some of us is that there are things that some of us that we need to do now about this. That there are books, there are magazines, there's websites, there's apps on our phones, there's places, there's relationship habits that are happening in our life now that Jesus says, you've got to cut out. You've got to get rid of this. And people would hear me saying this and paraphrasing this and going, you're being, this is exactly what I thought about you Christians. You're being legalistic about this sort of stuff. Just ease up, will you? This is legalistic. No, it's loving. You know, a parent to a child, if a three-year-old is about to go and run out on the edge of the Pacific Highway, what do they say? They say, stop! They don't say, oh, let's just have a little discussion, sweetie, about what's happening here as the Mack truck comes down from North Sydney. Jesus says, stop. There are some things for us that are so serious that he says needs to be cut out now. And it's the most loving restriction that he could place on our lives this morning. Uh, Third point, don't just stop. Sounds contradictory, but you can't just stop. That's the whole point. If we're talking about desire here or inordinate desire, you can't just stop desire. It's like saying stop sucking. You've ever tried to suck a lolly or a, a chocolate eclair in your mouth? You can't. You have a little bit of a taste and you bite it and you swallow it. I've never been able to. You can't just stop. Uh, what, what you need is an even, as Thomas Chalmers would put it, the power of a greater affection. The power of a greater affection. The only way that you stop sucking on an eclair is you see something more delicious and you put that in your mouth. And that is the point when it comes to sexual desire, is that you, you need to move in and, and to see it differently and to desire something that is beyond the sexual desire. And that's where, of course, we look up into, the, into that vision of God that we have in him. And I have to understand that... that that everything that he withholds from us in our lives at a, po- at a point in time is necessary. Everything that he gives us in our life at a point in time is necessary. And we look to him and we desire him and we look to the beauty and we say, no, this thing called sex, it's good and it's wonderful and it's powerful, but Lord, it's just a signpost. And signposts are not meant to be sat under. You need to move beyond that and to take that desire up into a, a much greater vision. Paul says it. Paul says that when he talks about sexual immorality and mucking around in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, you were bought for a price. Don't you know your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? You were bought at a price. Don't do that. What's he doing? He's saying, channel channel that desire into something more beautiful and wonderful. I'm a a temple of the Holy Spirit. How How can I do that to myself or to someone else? So don't just stop. Just stopping won't work. Here's the final one. Rejoice in the grace over your sexual past. You know, there, there's a passage in here that I've lived in fear of pretty much all my life until I was old enough to read bits of the Bible. And, uh, and it scared the, the daylights out of me. It, it really, uh, I, I used to read it and it, it would just freak me out because it says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor the male prostitutes, nor the practicing homosexuals, nor the thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanderers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
That's the one that a lot of conservative Christians go to if they're going to go and get in someone's face about this sort of stuff. That freaked me out because I'm going, I've stolen stuff. I've been greedy. I've dealt with sexual sin. Uh, I've swindled people. I've slandered people. That scares the daylights out of me. Until I read this part of the verse, and I only read it this week. It was a gift from God. What does Paul say next in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6? And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hey, um, we, we are Christians first and we're greedy second because we still deal with it. We are Christians first and we're dealing with sexual sin second. We are Christians first and we are slandering second. Paul is saying this does not define you anymore. What that means for you this morning is if you're feeling guilty about past your past sexual behaviours or your sexual past, that's who you were. You've been washed, you've been made clean, you've been made new by him. You don't need to go cut your hand off because he was cut off. You don't need to gouge your eye out because they practically gouged his eyes out. He took the pain, he went to hell for you so that you didn't have to slide there in the purest sense of the term. That's what you were. Are you feeling about your sexual past? Rejoice in the grace that covers you this morning. Look how Jesus deals with people as we finish this morning with their poor sexual record. Luke chapter 7. He's having dinner with a whole bunch of religious people in their house and they're all debating theological stuff and a prostitute walks in, crashes the party. She goes and grabs perfume and she pours it all over his feet and she's crying such tears that she has to wipe them off his feet with her hair. And they're all sniggering and like every other conservative Christian about this sort of stuff, they're all sniggering at her, the Jewish leaders at the time. And here's what he says, Therefore I tell you her sins which were many have been forgiven and hence she has shown great love. But to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. If anything, friend, this morning, if this stuff is gripping you and it's working through, look at how Jesus deals with it. Forget all the theology. Come to his feet this morning. Weep tears of repentance over him and watch him lift your head again and say, it's okay, you're new, I forgive you.